So I'm here with Valerie Flareman, um, who's an MD MPH at UCSF. Um, and we're just going to be talking a bit about her research and um, some COVID complications as with everything else, these last few years have been more difficult due to COVID. So um, just to get started, I would love to hear about your research. Um, everyone at Columbia um, who listens to this podcast is interested in public health and um, public health research techniques. So um, how did you settle on um, your, your focus? What inspired your project in Uganda and Guinea-Bissau? Just, yeah, how long have you been doing this work? <laughs> um, well, great. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's good yeah. to be here um, and to talk about this. And um, one of the topics I'm really passionate about is um, newborn feeding and growth, because I think there are so many barriers to infants in low and middle income countries, even if they're born healthy, there are so many barriers to having them grow and develop in a healthy way. And I'm really passionate about taking babies from that point of birth to hopefully grow to be healthy children and adults. And um, so uh, populations that are really at risk are in these low and low middle income countries where um, nutrition can be very poor and um, healthcare may be very minimal or even, you know, potentially basically non-existent. And yeah. so um, my recent research has focused on newborns in these areas and um, in 2019, I started um, the study that I'm still working on now, which is called um, Preventing Infant Malnutrition with Early Supplementation, or PRIMES. Hmm. And the goal of PRIMES is, was first to just look at how newborns grow in that first, we define the newborn month as the first month after birth. And over that time, what people don't always realize is that um, newborns typically lose weight before they start to grow. Mm -hmm. But how that happens in low and middle income countries had really not been described. So um, Primes uh, started our project in Guinea-Bissau and Uganda in 2019, mm -hmm. following babies over the first 30 days, weighing and measuring them multiple times, and asking their mothers about their health and their feeding to see if we could figure out how babies grow, healthy babies grow in low and middle income countries and hopefully figure out what might be contributing to their poor growth. Yeah. Um, and um, so we started in Guinea-Bissau and Uganda and we actually completed those projects in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and it took a little longer to get started in our South Asian sites which were in uh, Karachi, Pakistan, and in uh, Dulakel in Nepal. Okay. Um, when we, uh, in Pakistan, we started in November 2019, and we actually were able to wrap up that first phase of the project by February 2020, not realizing what was right around the corner. But in Nepal, we started our project in December 2019, and they rolled it out a little bit slowly so that they had just finished 
enrollment of their target of 100 infants in mid-March 2020. Mm-hmm. And that's when the shutdown started to roll across right. South Asia. Um, so what we found is that the, the plan for our study had been that we would weigh babies, weigh and measure them multiple times over the course of the first month, in addition to asking their mothers, how is their health? How are they feeding? How are they doing? Mm-hmm. You know? And um, what wound up uh, happening is that we, um, our teams were not able to actually go visit the mothers anymore because of the shutdown. So the mothers were not able to come to the medical center, mm-hmm. and the medical center teams were not able to go to the mothers' homes as planned to do these measurements. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to call the moms and just ask them, are the babies sick, are they well, what's happening? Mm-hmm. But we weren't able to get those crucial measurements. That must have been challenging. Okay, wow, very interesting stuff. So um, I, I'm just curious about some crucial steps in the research process. So mm-hmm. you are interested in lower and middle income countries how did you settle on um, Uganda, Guinea-Bissau, Nepal, and was it Afghanistan? Pakistan. Pakistan, yeah. 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 I, think, I think there were like a few, um, a key uh, reason mm-hmm. was that these teams had the, um, the skills and infrastructure to access this population because mm-hmm. our research actually involved um, enrolling and weighing babies when they were less than six hours old. Right. So um, to be able to um, to contact mothers in that very early time after birth mm-hmm. requires a really specialized team mm-hmm. that not only has the skills to even hold a baby that age, right? Because that's like a skill yeah. by itself, mm-hmm. um, but also has the connections at the birthing facilities or um, in some cases they were um, very um, limited, um, you wouldn't really call it a healthcare facility, it would be maybe a healthcare worker in a room to have the connection and the trust with that person that they would be able to um, recruit someone in that very vulnerable time. And, and because that work is really difficult to do, um, almost all the research on newborn weight in low and middle income countries mm-hmm. will do something like, they'll report a newborn weight that happens sometime in the first month, mm-hmm. or maybe, if you're lucky, sometime in the first week. Mm. But the thing is, babies actually, on average, we now know, now that we did primes and looked at our data, mm-hmm. they actually gain about 30% of their birth weight just over those first 30 days. And actually, before they gain weight, mm-hmm. they actually start by losing weight. So on average, they right. lose 7% of their birth weight. And then, if you think about it, they basically gain 37% because they have to regain their 7% to get back to birth weight. And then they end the month 30% up. So depending on when you weigh them there, if you're yeah. trying to make, if you're trying to understand newborn birth weight and growth, mm-hmm. if you're not clearly specifying a time when you're weighing them, you know, your population is going to be, there's going to be a lot of misclassification. Mm, I see. Um, 
So, so, um, so the difficulty was is what I think why there was this um, lack of literature describing this time, gotcha. and um, and we were able to identify these teams that had the connections and had the skills to be able to um, approach hand, to handle babies and approach moms at this early time. Okay, so you partnered with a medical center in one city per country or multiple cities per country? Um, yeah, it was really, well, in, um, in, in Uganda, um, we partnered with an academic team at Makerere okay. University okay. that worked with three different health centers. Two were in Kampala, which is a very big, sprawling city, mm-hmm. and one was in Makono, which is sort of adjacent to Kampala, mm-hmm. and then um, we had um, our collaborators in Karachi, Pakistan, used two different hospitals in Karachi. Um, one was um, a, an academic medical center that served a relatively more um, wealthy population, okay. and one was um, a public center, that uh, health center that served a relatively more indigent population. Um, in Nepal, uh, it was just uh, the team was from that medical center and um, and recruited at their medical center. And then in Guinea-Bissau, our team is non-medical. Mm. So these are really special people that um, Guinea-Bissau has particularly low levels of um, medical expertise and mm-hmm. um, or, or few people, I should say not levels, but like the number of trained um, medical professionals is few, mm. and um, and so they have many different responsibilities. The people that are um, trained medical professionals. So um, our team is non-medical, but had developed the research skills needed to actually uh, weigh and measure the babies, and they actually recruited from multiple different locations, including. Mm very small village health centers or even home births. Wow. So, yeah, they're a really, really special team. So you really had a range of living experiences represented yes. across the different countries. That's very cool. Very much so, yeah. yes. In Karachi, we even had people that I think um, uh, didn't have any food insecurity or, you know, okay. very protected population. Part of, part of that population was very protective. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, though, that population in Karachi, still the newborns had still major problems with growth. In fact, mm-hmm. um, that hospital maybe had, the, I believe had the, if I'm remembering correctly, had the highest um, prevalence of underweight at, at 30 days of age of any of the locations. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Have you gotten to dig into that statistic a little bit, like why it could be the case? or? I think part of it is mm-hmm. their birth weight, the weight that they're born, mm-hmm. their actual birth weight, because mm-hmm. birth weight in, in our prime study, in the South Asian infants, birth weight was 200 grams lower than the, the African infants. Okay. And the African infants' mean birth weight was... 300 grams lower than you, you. U.S. infants have a mean birth weight of about 2,400 grams. Um, Do you which know is, 
what around what that is in pounds? It's about seven pounds. Oh, that's right? how much so I like, weigh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. that's like the um, healthy baby, um, okay. and um, uh, in in Uganda, you know, and I don't want to. I I'm try, uh, always try to be careful not to sound like I'm making a statement about the whole country because right. um, we only enrolled about. Uh, 200 babies in Uganda, 200 babies in Guinea-Bissau. So this does okay. not represent the countries Absolutely. or their births. Yeah. But mean birth weight was uh, 3,100 grams for those babies. And then in South Asia, it was 2,900 grams. So oh, that's mean birth weight. Mm-hmm. So at birth, many, like almost half of the um, population that, that we enrolled in um, South Asia was already low birth weight at the time they were born. So mm-hmm. really they um, were already behind the curve, you know, at the time of their birth. Okay. And what we also saw um, was that especially in South Asia, for some reason, um, uh, male infants are supposed to grow faster than female infants. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason in South Asia, they actually um, didn't seem to grow that much faster. Mm-hmm. And um, so since the World Health Organization child growth standards um, set range for normal growth, that where the males grow much faster than the females, right? Um, the South Asian males were very, very likely to be below the World Health Organization child growth standards at um, uh, 30 days of age. So it really, it, not wanting to extrapolate too much to the whole country, but it did look like there are really important issues that need to be addressed. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, okay, let's see. A few more questions about um, just how you get a study like this started because it's, it's just mm-hmm. so exciting to think about. Yeah. How, um, how do you select the specific mother infant pairs um to participate i i guess i have a little a, a small sense of this because i worked on the survey okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds really difficult um you know sort of filtering out the babies who can't participate for whatever reason um would you mind explaining a bit about that yeah, yeah. i think that um the key uh, as you select your mothers and be, you want you want to make sure that you so, you make a plan in advance mm-hmm. that selects them, rather than um, just using. <clears throat> the least scientific thing is for mm-hmm. someone to just use their judgment at the time when the baby's born, because mm-hmm. when people do that, sometimes they think like, oh, it's almost lunchtime. I don't want to enroll this baby or. Oh, I'm bored now. I'll enroll this baby, and that's a really non-scientific way to select your population. Yeah. So you <laughs> want to make sure that you have like very clear criteria in advance. Definitely. Um, and for um, for the study that I, I was um, just talking about, mm-hmm. we tried to have very broad entry criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, for that particular study, we um, any baby two kilos or up. We would who was uh, we would enroll unless they were acutely ill at the time of um, birth. So if they okay. obviously if a baby is sick and needs medical care, we don't want to be 
weighing and measuring them and stuff like that. We want them yeah. to get the medical care yeah. that they need. But what we did with that project is we took that information and we designed um, a randomized trial of an intervention to improve feeding. And for that, as you were mentioning, we picked some really careful criteria. Mm-hmm. And one of the most important is that in this intervention, we're studying the use of formula mm-hmm. and whether it can, a little bit of formula can help breastfeeding infants grow better. Right. And um, so um, if uh, when it, we think about giving formula to babies in low and middle income countries, one of the key issues is that we should never give formula to babies when their mothers are HIV positive, mm. because formula and breastfeeding to get, or let me t- actually let me t- uh, take a step back. Mm-hmm. So, um, in the U.S., if a mother is HIV positive, um, if if um, if she's on effective antiretroviral therapy, um, uh, and her um, viral load is is undetectable. Mm-hmm. Some mothers actually decide to go ahead and breastfeed, and uh, that's a whole separate question. There's been a lot of work done on that. Okay. But in the U.S., it mm-hmm. would very much be an option for an HIV-positive mother to not breastfeed and mm-hmm. give only formula. Mm-hmm. And if a mother does that, the, the baby does not get HIV. It's, right. it's basically impossible. Right. Because um, HIV, you know, is not... You can't um, you you can't infect someone through just hugging them or kissing them yes, or something. Yes. It has to be like breastfeeding or like some kind of um, you know bodily uh, more bodily fluid yeah, contact. Right? Yeah. Um, so um, so formula I, formula can be a very good choice for HIV po- babies of HIV positive moms. Mm-hmm. But in um, in the settings where we're working in Africa. Um, it, our populations really can't afford formula as like a substitute for breastfeeding. Okay. So they would have to breastfeed with formula. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we really discourage for babies of HIV positive moms mm. because combining breast combining breastfeeding from an HIV positive mom mm-hmm. with formula actually makes it much more likely for the baby to get HIV. So we really don't want to do that. Wow. So that okay. was a major exclusion criteria for our um, our trial. So mothers with um, HIV were excluded, excluded entirely. from the trial. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. And I think I think that is um, whenever you exclude a population, you have to think to yourself: Is it ethical to exclude these people? Mm-hmm. Because we know that mothers with HIV are their children are at risk. Right? We know their risk of health problems, of not growing. But this particular trial is studying formula, which is an intervention that we specifically think will be not healthy for um, babies of HIV-positive mothers. So I would love to, um, to, uh, to go back to um, mm-hmm. some of the populations that we've worked with and see if we can think of interventions that are effective for these babies of HIV-positive mothers. Um, and, um, you know, for me, I've just learned a lot from doing this work mm-hmm. that in the future I might actually design a different study. But this is the study we're, 
doing now. So you have yeah. to do it as ethically as you can. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So going off of that, um, well, I guess first, what what aspects of the study of of the infant and mother's lives did you control? What were the treatment groups? Um, and then, yeah, what were the ethical considerations that come that came along with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so. There were two. Um, uh, our study has two treatment groups, um, and babies get mothers and babies get randomly assigned to one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, one uh, treatment group is recommendation to breastfeed exclusively, mm-hmm. and exclusive breastfeeding is the standard of care World Health Organization recommendation right now, mm-hmm. right? Where um, really all around the world, unless there are very rare contraindications. The recommendation is that babies should get breast milk and nothing else other than vitamins, minerals, and medications mm-hmm. until they're about six months of age when they can begin uh, what's called complementary feeding, which is typically um, like you know pureed meats or grains or fruits or vegetables or something, typically not formula or any kind of milk substitute and continue breastfeeding through one to two years of age, depending on there's a various, uh, not not total alignment of the guidelines about total duration of breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one group. Mm-hmm. And then the other group had almost the same instructions to breastfeed exclusively, not use any other feeding, mm-hmm. except... The other group, which was the intervention group, mm-hmm. was offered formula once a day for oh, 30 days. Okay, okay. And they could take as much as they, uh, well, up to 59 mLs, which okay. is, that's two ounces. That's actually a lot for for a newborn, you know, so mm-hmm. as much as they wanted, up to 59 mLs. Is that a typical bottle, half a bottle? It's like, I would say it's half of what you think of as a small bottle okay like a small what you might think of as a small baby bottle would be about four ounces okay so it'd be half of that but we actually had um special bottles that are made for newborns Mm, okay so they just contained the two ounces um and you know the babies would drink anywhere from just a teaspoon or a few sometimes not sometimes they weren't hungry after breastfeeding, they drank nothing, to drinking the whole bottle, and they would just do that once a day. Okay. Um, so they were still getting most of their milk from breast milk, mm-hmm. but a little something extra from the, from the supplementary feeding. I see. And was this formula that mothers in those countries would typically have access to, or was it provided by your team? Yes, it was provided okay. by the team from the United States, which okay. I think is... Um, uh, it's um, that's an issue that um, uh, experts of all kinds often bring up because clearly a program is not sustainable where it involves bringing in sealed bottles of formula from the United States to you know across the Atlantic Ocean you know <laughs> um, but uh, the the way our study was envisioned is a, as a pilot proof of concept study to see if um, if this would work. And one of the things that we've been very focused on is um, the concern that uh, some of the scientific literature suggests that combining formula and breastfeeding 
might be riskier for infants in terms of um, causing more pneumonia or gastroenteritis. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the uh, um, so we're going to carefully be looking at all those results um, at the um, as we go forward and we have um, uh, several kind of pre-specified time points to check the data and make sure that we're not seeing anything um, uh, concerning in that way. Um, but um, uh, that's all part of the scientific process to do it rigorously and be very careful. Mm -hmm.